Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Music History Project. We are in video form for the first time ever. This is very exciting. Today we are going to be talking all about the British Invasion. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. And welcome back to a very special episode of the Music History Project. Uh, you can see us, which is what makes it so special. <laughs> Not just the topic this time around. Uh, and today, like Mike mentioned before, we are going to be uh, covering the British Invasion, which mostly people associate with the Beatles, which of course they were pretty pivotal in. Uh, but there was a lot of other amazing bands during that time. So that's what we're going to kind of cover today very super exciting isn't it you guys this is awesome the first time the music history project has put a, a camera in front of us which is kind of weird i always like being in the background for a lot of good reasons but uh, this is exciting um and thanks to you guys for making this possible and for all those people who keep asking hey what do you guys look like you might not ask for that for me anymore, but uh, you can see how good looking these guys are. Uh, this is awesome. Uh, thank you so much for uh, tuning in. We have a fantastic uh, podcast coming up about the British invasion because we've gotten to interview some really great people who played a big part in the British invasion uh, thanks to the NAM Oral History Pro Program. So we're going to be talking to uh, several different people. In fact, we should probably list who is coming up. Who would like to list who we're going to hear from? I'll do that for you. We are going to be hearing from Peter Asher, Rod Argent, Sarah and Bernard Michelson, Spencer Davis, and that looks like it. Isn't that so, a cool? great list? It's a really good list. And I think this is going to be one of, one of the top episodes that we've done because it's such a cool subject and it's a very interesting subject to hear how all of this happened. So let's just jump right into it. We're going to be hearing from Peter Asher first. He's going to be talking about the music scene over in the UK, coming over to America, and a little bit about Buddy Holly at the end. When did you pick up the guitar? Um, I think around the time of the skiffle craze, which was sort of the 50s. You know, I, I don't know how much you know about skiffle, but it's such a very specific British phenomenon. It didn't really happen here, but... Um, Lonnie Donegan, I think. Well, he, he, yes. I don't, I don't know if you know how it started. It's, tell me, I yeah. can tell you stories about anything forever, unfortunately. So <laughs> you have to decide how long you want. Um, you know, what we used to call trad jazz was very big in England, which was Dixieland, essentially. There were a lot of bands um, playing, you know, American traditional jazz. That's the lineup of, you know, trumpet, trombone, clarinet, banjo, so on, bass and drums. And... Um, Lonnie Donning was the banjo player in Chris Barber's jazz band. Chris Barber was one of the leading trad jazz bands of the time. And I guess that was sort of 
mid-50s, I'm terrible on dates, but when the, the trad jazz craze was sweeping England. Um, and uh, they would give him a spot in the show where he would do, Lonnie Donegan was the banjo player in the band, and also loved American folk music, and he would do a little spot in the middle where he would do a couple of songs, and that was the beginning of Skiffle, pretty much. And uh, according to the books I've read, there were 50,000 skiffle groups in England at its peak because, because you didn't have to have anything. I mean, you could, if you, as long as you play three chords on a guitar, you had a tea chest bass or a washtub bass, um, you know, where you just pull the broom handle to raise and lower the notes, a, a, a washboard, no drums, and a couple of guitars, and that was it. So that's, that's the Beatles side one, obviously, is famously, but we did too. And this was before I met Gordon, and, uh, and everybody had one. I mean, because it, it was so easy and so much fun. Mm. And, and uh, so that was probably, I think, when I got my first very cheap uh, guitar with some obscure brand, probably like Czech or something, you know, cause, um, and uh, learned a few chords. I'd learned a couple of chords before that, I think, from my father who played the ukulele, which I also love. Um, but he liked the ukulele. So uh, anyway, that was, that was the beginning, certainly. That's fantastic. I was wondering, were there musical instrument stores that you would go to as a kid? Um, yes, in Denmark Street. You know, that's the famous area, in, which is where the publishers are. That's the equivalent of Tin Pan Alley for England. And that's at the time where all the music shops are, were. I think they've dispersed a bit now, kind of like New York tragically has, you know, the whole 48th Street. Now there's none left. Rudy's was the last one, and that closed. Um, but I, so I may not, that may be the same, I'm not sure. But yes, that's where you'd go and look at guitars you couldn't afford in the window. And something I didn't really realize, and again, I warn you, I can go off on numerous tangents, the, you couldn't buy American instruments. Um, when uh, Cliff Richard, I'm sure you know all about Cliff Richard, and he was our, you know, our local hero, our Elvis kind of thing. Hank Marvin, who was his lead guitar player and leader of the Shadows, who had lots of hits on their own. One of the, when we went to see Cliff and Hank, one of the exciting things was that he had the very first Stratocaster ever seen in Great Britain. And I found that kind of hard to believe. I was talking to Albert Lee about it, who I've been working with lately, and he, he reconfirmed to me that only, none of those instruments were in England at all because they were considered luxury goods and had a punitive tax on them. And you've got to remember, we're still, still post-war. I mean, rationing didn't end until 56. You couldn't buy one yourself because you could, weren't allowed to take more than 50 pounds out of England when you left the country. So, and you couldn't send money overseas. So it was literally impossible to get one. And obviously Cliff, by that time, had his first gigantic record. He probably had an American label or management connections or whatever. Somebody who could actually be persuaded to buy one in America and ship it. So Hank had the very first bright red uh, Stratocaster in, in England. So yeah, we'd go to those music stores, but they would be obscure brands. You know, they, at the beginning, I don't think you saw Gibsons and Martins and, and uh, you know, serious guitars until a bit later on. And, and as soon as we could afford one, we got something better. But um, we were playing kind of anonymous instruments early on, for sure. That is really interesting. So what was the progression for you as far as your instruments? When did you get a, a, the better one, or the next one, I should say? I think Gordon and I bought, I had a, one, a really kind of cheap guitar myself, and then Gordon and I, when we started singing together, 
and started actually being asked to come and sing at parties or whatever and before we got paid engagements but but especially when we did eventually we had like a pub we could go and do every lunchtime and we got a pound each and free beer and uh, I mean, we must have been underage I'm sure and um, it, um, eventually we bought we did buy a pair of matching guitars again though anonymous ones I don't think we got Gibsons until we came to America and they gave them to us. Um, I'm pretty sure we the, the Gibson uh, J160Es that we played, we probably were playing uh, these other brands, I suspect, until we got to America where they did give us uh, two of those and then, then, they, then they gave us a couple of uh, J200s, which I still have, which is an unbelievably great guitar, a 65 J200. Sounds incredible and is the one that's on a lot of the hit records I've got to make subsequently, like all the Linda Ronstadt records and stuff. Not necessarily played by me, but it's still the best recording rhythm acoustic I know. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, yeah, I don't think we, we got really good instruments until then, as far as I can remember. That's very interesting, yeah. Speaking of music stores, did you get out to Liverpool and to Hesse's at all? I never went to Liverpool hardly at all. The weirdest thing about when we came to America, of course, in 64, you know, all all everyone was reading about was Liverpool because the Beatles, and they were kind of going, "What what is Liverpool like?" And you go, "I've hardly been there." You know, we 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 played a couple of gigs there, but in and out, just like anywhere else. You know, nobody went there voluntarily, and and people are going, "Oh, Liverpool must be amazing." You know, I said, "No, honestly, everyone I know in Liverpool, the first thing they they saved up for was a train ticket to London." You know, and never came back. Um, now, Liverpool now, apparently, I should say, before anyone yells at me, is apparently fantastic. And I have been there. We actually did my show at the Cavern. But Liverpool is a happening city now, as are several other, like Sheffield is and there's other northern cities. But back in that day, they were, you know, seriously depressing northern mill towns kind of vibe, you know. And, and uh, at Blackpool was, was uh, uh, you know, Blackpool and the holiday resorts and stuff were one thing, but... But uh, Liverpool was a port, obviously, and, and uh, you know, and ports had the reputation then correctly of being kind of not somewhere you'd want to go necessarily, unless you're a, a docker, you know, or <laughs> wanted to go and work on a ship. Um, so no, I I, I I I don't know anything about Liverpool. Couldn't I? I'd never heard of the place you mentioned. Oh, funny. <laughs> um. One of the things I've been collecting is little stories about Buddy Holly and, yeah. and his influence on people, and I'd love to get your thoughts about about hearing him and being influenced. Uh, yes, I mean, I fell in love with Buddy Holly the first time I heard him. I, I think, you know, Gordon and I started seeing together at school, and and at that time I was pretty much a jazz fan and a folky. Um, you know, I was a huge bebop fan, had a big jazz record collection. But that music I knew I was, would never be good enough to play, you know, that you've really got to do your homework to be that good. But I loved it, just listened to it. But then I also fell in love with American folk music, you know, Woody Guthrie and Cisco Houston and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Lead Belly and all that. And, and that stuff, at least I could play it. I mean, I could figure it out. And it was, it was three chords. And uh, now I'm not saying I, I could do it well, because obviously, a, you know, weedy white English schoolboy singing a lead belly song is a bit ludicrous on on the face of it. But at least it wasn't like, you know, listen to a Charlie Parker record, you go, <laughs> you know, carry on. And um, so uh, I was a bit of a folky. Gordon, I think, primarily 
introduced me to rock and roll. I mean, of course, I'd heard some of it, heard Elvis particularly, Heartbreak Hotel was the first English hit, which we all went crazy about, and then went back and rediscovered the Sun Records stuff that preceded it. Uh, and I think it might have been Gordon who first turned me on to Buddy Holly, though I was already a big Everly Brothers fan, as was he. That's where Gordon and I totally co coincided, was in our admiration for the Everly. So, of course, we were trying to sound as much like as we could. And failing, but that's how you create something a little bit different. And uh, yeah, Buddy Holly was important because really, looking back on it now, you see, Buddy Holly was one of the first singer-songwriters. You know, before the term existed, people don't realize now that the word singer-songwriter is relatively recent. I mean, when James Taylor started singing, he was not a singer-songwriter, even though he was. He was a folk singer. If you had long hair and played an acoustic guitar, you were a folk singer. It didn't matter if you never sang a single damn folk song in your whole set, you were a folk singer, because that was the vibe, you know. And, late, and then suddenly turned into a singer-songwriter. And Buddy Holly, by the same token, to my mind, was a singer-songwriter. And, and also somebody who, one of the tragedies of his death, to my mind, is that he would definitely not, had he, if he were alive, he wouldn't be fat and playing Las Vegas. He wouldn't be, you know, dead of an overdose. I mean, he would be like, he'd be inventing new Pro Tools plugins and, and running a record label and, you know, producing stuff. Because he was into all of that. He wanted to have his own label. He wanted to produce his own records. He was apparently incredibly smart and funny and great. And, you know, everything I learned about him, I became a bigger fan. Plus, finally, of course, he made it okay to look a little bit nerdy. So those of us who, who didn't look like Elvis, like Gordon did, um, in the general category, you know, of being bit, bit Elvisy. Um, somebody like me who wore glasses and was a bit more nerdish, look at Buddy Hollyman, oh, you can still do it, you know, it's okay. So if you look at the old Peter and Gordon pictures, those glasses, of course, are Buddy Holly glasses, which is not an accident. I literally went to opticians in London saying, I want these glasses with my album cover and uh, got them. So once again, that was Peter Asher that we just saw and heard from for the first time. <laughs> and I wanted to explain before we continue what exactly is behind me. Um, this is actually the physical archives um, at NAM. So catalogs, uh, things from manufacturers, pictures, documents, all behind me, all housed at the NAM headquarters. Um, it's a very cool collection. And uh, I just wanted to show it off for our first ever video podcast. That's really awesome. And it gives me an opportunity to say that that basically is Ashley's job. Her gig at NAM <laughs> is the archivist and the, the coordinator of our department. So she's in charge of cataloging all of the new stuff that comes in and helps us with research questions for those people who are asking. Um, Mike's big gig is uh, all the video production, all the podcast production, all of our interviews and storing them and um, that's that's the simple version of both of their lives um, um and i'm the one that causes all the chaos so um but you do a great job of it dan <laughs> thank you i should get up yeah, it's two of us for one of you it seems like a fair <laughs> you guys have wonderful backgrounds as well do you want to talk a little bit about what you got going on Sure. Uh, I have a lovely artistic piano background <laughs> that is part of our NAMM collection that we have of, of uh, fun virtual backgrounds since we're all working from home and uh, doing lots of Zoom calls these days. 
And this is my custom with my name spelled correctly and everything um, that the Marcom department at NAM put together. And um, it was the first one I found when I was running late to this podcast. So <laughs> that's the one that works today. It's very nice. Very nice. <laughs> so we heard from Peter Asher from Peter and Gordon fame. That was uh, the British invasion part of his career coming over um, and invading all of us in a very special way um, with a bunch of big hits. Of course, the biggest uh, was A World Without You. And, um, you know, uh, Gordon Waller was his partner. Uh, they were friends for a long time. They started recording together. And um, interestingly enough, um, Peter's sister, Jane, dated Paul McCartney. And Paul provided them with a couple of songs that their two buddies could uh record. And of course, that was one of them. Uh, they actually, uh, I think, recorded three or four other songs that uh, Paul and John had written also. Um, another one that I really like is Nobody I Know. Um, and that really kind of per, uh, perpetuated their desire to record because they had these great tunes. Um, and they wrote themselves and they also recorded some other songs from some other people. But it was those by, by John and, and Paul that really got their career off the ground. And it also segued into their um, traveling to the United States in 1964, being on all kinds of television programs. And of course, their, their records went right to the top. And so he had a firsthand experience being a part of the British invasion. I should also note that uh, the uh, tech part of the NAM world embraces Peter because of his uh, record producing career after his recording career. Um, and being the A&R guy for such people as Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor and really, really playing a significant role in both of their careers as well as many others. And as an interesting side note, and something I asked him about, uh, Mike Myers actually fashioned um, the character of, you guessed it, Austin Powers <laughs> after the look he said not the accent and not the attitude. He was very quick to say it was just the look that was patterned after him. Uh, but great guy, Peter, as you could hear in that interview. Um, and now I'd like to segue into just a little bit of information about the next guy we're going to hear from, and that is the, uh, the original founder and keyboardist for the Zombies, Rod Ar uh, Argent. Um, Rod, uh, amazing guy as well. Um, you can hear his harpsichord and Mellotron and Hammond B3 on a lot of big, big hit records, most of which were done with the zombies like uh, She's Not There, Tell Her No, uh, Time of the Season, I think that was 1968. And then um, the, the band Argent that came together in 1972 had a great album called All Together. If you guys get a chance to listen to that, that's one of my favorite uh, contributions to, uh, of his musically. Uh, he has this amazing Hammond B3 solo in a track off that album called, um, um, oh, I just, I just lost it. Oh, Hold Your Head Up. Yeah, I was confusing it with another song on that same album, but the Hold Your Head Up 
solo uh, Hammond B3 is something that people have actually pointed to as an influence on other careers like Rick Wakeman, as a matter of fact. So um, really, really neat stuff. Okay, so I was in England and I had the chance to go to, I'm going to describe it as a castle because I'm from Southern California and anything that has like big archways and old brick and stuff that, you know, and it's in England, it had to have been the castle. That's my definition too. Yeah, I agree. I don't don't know if they really, you know, discern that specifically as a castle, but to me it was a castle. And I drove up to his castle and there were two spider cars like parked like this, I'm glad we have video, um, <laughs> like 1963 and 64, mint oh. condition, one red, one black. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> now, now, in my mind, I'm going to say a uh, fairness. I may have exp- uh, um, added a little bit more to this. I might have glamorized this in my mind a little <laughs> bit. But what I remember is Rod comes to the door in his house robe um, and kind of flings the door open and he has a champagne flute in his hand and he says, come on in. And the first thing I see is this grand piano with the chandelier above it and the whole thing. And I thought, this is a rock and roll life right here. A castle with two spiders, a champagne flute and your house robe in the middle of the day. I loved it. He was not pretentious, though. I just want to make sure I point that out. He was down to earth, very, very cool guy, but living the life. Why not? I mean, he was on these amazing hit records and has had a big influence on music. So I'm so glad uh, when Ashley did the pre-production of this uh, podcast today and thought, let's see who she comes up with that uh, will be part of the British Invasion podcast. I'm so glad she picked this guy because he's super, super cool. Well, you can't not include him. I mean, <laughs> the zombies, that is 100% part of the British invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think he would, he would probably very much appreciate your description of what you experienced going to his house. I would. I mean, it's a great story, even if it's slightly, you know, inflated from your memory. Probably. <laughs> oh, uh, so with that fantastic story that Dan just uh, uh, gave us there, we are going to listen to a little bit from Rod Argent uh, from that interview in the castle. <laughs> uh, and he's going to go through a little bit of just uh, how his obsession with music started as a kid and then going into first couple gigs and putting together the zombies as well as um, the great story about recording She's Not There uh, and where that where that song came from is a really great storyline. So here is Rod Argent. I was obsessed with music. I mean, all this time I was still in the cathedral choir because when my voice started breaking, the master of the music, this Peter Herford guy, asked me if I'd stay on uh, as an alto. So singing in falsetto, basically, for the slightly lower, uh, you know, you've got the trebles and then you've got the male altos and then tenors and basses. Um, so I did for a couple of years. I stayed on doing that. So that's why I was still uh, at school. Um, so all that was going on. Um, and then when I left school at 18, I deliberately didn't apply to university that year 
because uh, I desperately wanted us to try and turn professional. By that time, I'd formed the Zombies. I'd formed the Zombies when I was 16 years old, uh, or 15 maybe even, actually. It was in 1961, no, 16, it was 1961, 50 years ago this Easter. Um, and uh, because I so desperately wanted to do that, I deliberately didn't apply to university. Um, and then I came back from a holiday and the headmaster had phoned up my parents and said, why hasn't he applied to university? I've applied on his behalf and this particular university is gonna take him. And I thought, oh God. But uh, I knew I had a few months and, and but my aspiration was totally, even at that time, to be in music. I mean, uh, my other alternatives, I think, would have been to have been a t an English teacher or to be in journalism. And I had a vague idea of maybe going into advertising, but really, I wanted to be a musician. That's terrific, yeah, amazing. And so tell me a little bit about how the band got put together. The band got put together because um, my cousin that I've already talked about, the, the bass player, he's four years older than me, um, Jim Rodford. Now, he, uh, I'd heard Elvis down at his house because um, he was in one of the first electric groups in the whole of the south of England. Um, he started off playing in a skiffle group, uh, playing T-chest bass with a broom handle and a piece of string, and he can still sound great on that. I have to tell you, he puts a mic in, in, inside it, still sounds absolutely great. But um, I went to see the Blue Tones play when I was 11 and Jim was 15. And I was so completely knocked out. I thought, I have to be in a band, I have to be in a band. And then when I was 15, I was wandering into this classroom, another classroom to my class, uh, and there was a folk club going on in the corner. And in the corner was a guy playing guitar. That was Paul Atkinson, uh, who was uh, the original Zombies guitarist. Um, excuse me. And I said to him, do you want to be in a band? And he said, yeah, all right. And I said, OK, right, now I have to find a drummer. So the, the school had an army corps, um, a military army cadet corps. So I, uh, I went on the Friday afternoon. I waited until the band in the cadet corps marched past, picked the drummer, who seemed to have the best sense of side drum rhythm, playing, you know, went up to him afterwards and said, do you want to be in a band? He said, yeah, all right. So then I thought, okay, now we need a bass player. And my best friend at the time was building a bass. He didn't go to my school. Never played a note of anything in his life, but he was building a bass. So I went to him and said, do you want to be in a band? He said, I said, have you nearly finished your guitar? He said, yeah. And I said, okay, uh, I'll, I'll make a rehearsal for two weeks time. He said, well, I've got a mate at school who, who plays guitar and sings a bit. And I said, well, bring him along. And unbelievably, with one change, because that bass player left soon afterwards to become a doctor. He's, he's been a doctor in Canada for many, many years. Um, that was the Zombies. And it worked. From the first rehearsal, it worked like a charm. And it sound, we sounded great. The only thing was, I was going to be the original lead singer. And uh, we had the first rehearsal. Uh, it was all sounding pretty good. And then we stopped for a coffee. I went over to a beaten up old piano in the corner, well out of tune, of this youth club we were rehearsing in started playing Nutrocker by B. Bumble and the Stingers. And Colin raced over to me and said, that sounds fantastic. He said, you have to play piano in this band, you have to. 
And I said, yeah, but it's a guitar. It was 1961, you know. I said, there aren't really any pianos in bands, you know. This is, you, you've got to have three guitars. He said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, you've got to play piano. I said, well, I, I don't know. No, no, I think I'll just stick to singing, you know. And then a few minutes later, he picked up his guitar and started singing a Rick Nelson song that was one of his heroes. I can still hear Rick Nelson in his voice, actually, um, a little bit, you know. And... Uh, I was completely gobsmacked. I thought it was fantastic. And I went up to him and said, OK, look, I'll play piano in the band, but you have to be the lead singer. And that was it. And that was the band. <laughs> and where did the name come from? The name came because we were looking for a name that was unusual that no one else would have, and it was really hard to find. Uh, for a couple of weeks, we, the, we, we had a couple of the most boring names in the world. We were called the Sundowners for about a week, which I think at least a hundred other English bands were called the Sundowners. Um, and then this bass player who left soon afterwards um, suggested the Zombies. Now, immediately, I loved that name. I just loved it for a couple of reasons, really. Colin hated it. Um, but the thing was, my reasons were, A, I didn't think any other band would have it. B, it seemed to me that whatever the name was of a, of a band, the meaning soon became just associated with the members. It's like with the Beatles, you don't think of uh, insects scurrying around or even a play on words. You think of John, Paul, George and Ringo. That's who you think of when you think of the Beatles. And, and of course, it was, very, it was soon very true of the zombies as well. So I thought that was great. And the other thing to remember is that there, weren't, there wasn't a clutch of, of um, zombie movies at that time. No one really knew what a zombie was. Even we, we only had the vaguest idea. We knew it was something fairly exotic and that that sort of had some associations um, with weird esoteric things in in um, Haiti or something. But that's just about all we knew. So, you know, so it wasn't like it was connected very strongly in your imagination with hordes of the undead, you know, and, and whatever the living dead and whatever. Um, so they were the reasons, really. And, and, but I have to say, the minute he said that, I thought, what a fantastic name. The very first TV we ever did was Ready, Steady, Go. And we went on Ready, Steady, Go. It was a great night, actually. A lot of great people on. Uh, Manfred Mann was also on. And, and they were doing their first record, 54321, um, which was uh, in the UK was their first record. And... Uh, I heard Miles Davis, which, as I've already told you, was one of my passions. I'd been blown away by the band he had in 1958-1960 with um, John Coltrane, Cannibal Adderley, Bill Evans, um, all Winton Kelly on piano, um, Paul Chambers. Uh, wonderful. And I heard a beautiful Miles Davis record play from one of the dressing rooms, and I wandered in and said, I didn't even know it was Manfred, you know, and, and I said, is that Miles Davis playing? He said, yeah, yeah. He looked at me, he said, you're, you're one of the zombies, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, oh, Manfred Mann. I said, oh, hi. You know. He said, uh, oh, man, I love your record. He said, but you've got to change that name. <laughs> that was the first thing he ever said to me. <laughs> um, but so, you know, it had a mixed reaction at first, but very soon it just becomes associated with whoever the group is. Yeah, it certainly did in that case. Yeah. I know about it, yeah. And it's interesting because... Um, you guys were playing and recording even before the Beatles. Really. We, were, we were playing at the same time as the Beatles. We, we were playing before the Beatles had their first record out. So we were in existence before the Beatles were professional, but we were around playing semi-pro at the same time as the Beatles were playing semi-pro. Interesting, yeah. And I have to say, 
one thing that the Beatles and we shared in common was the fact we always sang harmonies. Now, you have to realise that in 1961, the Beatles were doing harmonies. Most other bands were based on Cliff Richard and the Shadows over here. And it was one lead singer and three guitars. You know, n not really any three-part harmony going on. Um, but we always, right from the start, even when we almost had no equipment, we would set a mic up behind Colin and Chris and I would sing harmonies with Colin. So when the Beatles came out, we thought they were wonderful and they were wonderful. But um, we shared a few things in common with them, actually. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. So tell me a little bit about your, your first recording experience and, and where did the songs come from? We had... Um, as I said to you before, I desperately wanted us to stay together, but everyone was reaching the end of their academic education and they were getting places at university, that sort of thing. Chris White was already at art school, so that wasn't so much of an issue. Um, but um, I was desperate to hold the band together and there was a beat competition, as it was called at the time. Um, and the prize for this was a recording contract with Decca. And we entered this and won it. And in fact, we were offered a recording contract by Decca, even at the semi-final stage, even though they said, keep it under your hat. Um, but we did go on to win the competition. Uh, we had a producer called Ken Jones. We were going to record Summertime. In fact, we'd already recorded a version of Summertime. Um, and Ken Jones, our producer, said, listen, guys, he said, I think before the session proper, he said, I think we ought to re-record Summertime. He said, fine, you know, let's, let's see if we can polish it up a little bit for a single. He said, but why don't you try and write something yourself for the session? So I went away and wrote She's Not There, which for years I said, I said was the second song I ever wrote. It's recently come to my memory that it was actually the third, because the first song I ever wrote was called It's All Right With Me, and it was on an EP that we, we put out. And... and um, She's, and it was the very first thing we ever recorded, actually. She's Not There was the second, I think, um, in this particular session on that day. Um, but, so, so basically, She's Not There was the second song I ever wrote. But uh, it, Jim, the, the guy I keep talking about, who was my cousin, was in this band, The Blue Tones, that I've already mentioned. Now, I'd written one song when I was 15 years old. 15? I think, yeah, I was 15. And um, it was called The Lonely One. And I didn't think any record of any sort of this existed. But Jim, just two weeks ago, someone had come up to him. I, I'd completely forgotten this. They'd gone into Olympic Studios, which was a major recording studio, the Blue Tones, and they'd recorded the song that I'd written when I was 15. When I was 15, they'd recorded it. And I now have on my computer this proper recorded version of the very first song I ever wrote when I was 15 years old. But apart from that, She's Not There really was, in fact, was the third song I ever wrote. Wrote it for the session and it came out and it was number one all over the world. Amazing. Where did the idea of that song come from? Is there a story behind it? The only story behind it was that we had to have a song for two weeks' time. <laughs> um, I went into my mother's front room, still living with my mum and dad at the time, uh, thought, where am I going to start with this song? The, there were two or three elements. One was that there were a couple of chord sequences that I was fond of. One was basically a minor seventh to a major chord 
uh, which was a fourth above. In other words, it was A minor seventh to D seventh. I really like that minor seventh to major feeling. And I, I, I wanted that to somehow be the basis of the verse. There was another thing that I was very fond of, the idea of chromatic chord changes. Um, I don't want to get too technical here, but I went from D, D minor to A minor. But instead of putting those root notes on that, I, I, I did a, a D with an F sharp in the bass, D minor with an F in the bass. So I was just going down half a step at a time in the bass and then an A minor with an E in the bass. So I wanted to get that within it. So it's musical genesis of the song, really. Another th idea that I had, I wanted, it was a very unusual construction actually for a song. It was in three parts. You had the verse, the bridge section, and then a sort of culmination, which was, let me tell you about the way she looked. That bit was the sort of, and my idea was to have a bluesy melody over this chord sequence on the first part, to develop it with this bridge with these different bass notes, and then build up excitement on the culmination up to a major chord at the end, finish, basically on a one note melody with chords changing underneath it. So it built the tension. And that was the musical basis of the song. Um, the lyrical basis started, I thought, right, I've got to start somewhere with this. So I, was, I just played a load of old blues records that I particularly liked. And there was a John Lee Hooker track, which was called No One Told Me. Now, it doesn't bear any relation to She's Not There, apart from the opening words, No One Told Me. But I, I thought, I like the way those syllables trip off the tongue. So they became the first words of the tune. And the story built itself. As I, I started, No One Told Me, and I built a little story of a relationship you know, from those words, and that's basically the song. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> Were you surprised at how uh, popular it became? Well, do you know I wasn't, because when you're that age, you have one little window of naive um, sort of optimism and, uh, and of not knowing any of the pitfalls that can happen. You don't even see everything that has to be achieved before you get a good idea through to a fruitful conclusion. You just, you just think, yeah, I can write a song that's as good as the Beatles and Connell will sound great singing it and we're going to the studio and it'll all sound marvellous. And it did. And it came out and I thought, now it's going to be, you know, a hit in England and number one in the States. And it was. So we were very, very excited. I was very, very excited. But I thought, this is what's supposed to happen. And then, of course, very soon, something didn't happen that way. And I thought, hang on, this isn't in the script. But, you know, you only have that confidence and arrogance of youth, really, once. And, and it really does work for you for a little while. You know, you get all that confidence and you just steam ahead with your idea. <laughs> Now, what instruments uh, were you playing on, on the recording? On the recording, just just electric piano. Uh, I just played piano when we when we were semi pro. I used to play whatever pianos were in the halls, and it was pretty awful because they were usually out of tune, not tuned to concert pitch. The only time you could hear me was when I did Jerry Lewis runs up and down the piano. So I, consequently, I'd do that all night long, and my thumb would be bleeding, and there'd be blood on the keys, you know. Um, and then I discovered this instrument, the Hona Pianet, which was the first electronic um, piano that I came across. I mean, I'm sure the Fender was in existence, the Rhodes, Fender Rhodes, and I'm sure the Wurlitzer was in existence, but I'd never seen one. And this Hona Pianet, made in Germany, was the first um, electronic instrument, and, and I loved it. And I still love the sound of it. It's, it had the weirdest um, 
mechanism. It had sticky pads, which you press the, the key down, and as you press the key, the sticky pad attached itself to the, the, the tine, which, was, which made the sound, and then as it came away from the tine, the tension was like that, so it suddenly went boing as the sticky pad came away. Now, you can imagine that this had a limited life because you can, the stickiness can only be 100% for so long. And then it attracted hairs and things which buzzed against the... But I tell you what, it was a wonderful sound. And uh, I still love the sound of those honey peanuts. Okay, once again, that was Rod Argent and his NAM oral history interview as part of our podcast today about the British invasion. And we thought maybe this would be a good time to pause for a minute and figure out what is the definition of the British invasion. <laughs> um, you know, that was usually a term associated with uh, uh, the revolution and uh, bad things until music came in and turned it around to be a completely opposite. Uh, term, we all embrace the idea of the British invasion now. Um, and the, but the, kind of a funny term. I'm kind of wondering what your guys' impression of it is. Uh, I'll start by just saying that um, to me, it was always the idea that the um, our friends in England, the Brits, had uh, listened and been influenced by American music, mostly the blues and early rock and roll, and um, as sort of rock and roll was changing into much more of a commercialized pop music in the early 60s, many of these bands in England embraced the original rawness of rockabilly and the early recordings of people like Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Elvis and was so influenced that they could create their own sound from that. And they sort of repackaged it and brought it right back to us on a silver platter saying, ha, this is what you did, but uh, something different. But better. <laughs> but better, yeah, definitely. And very interestingly, I think it took our breath away as a nation because we were kind of in the mire of, and I'm not putting this type of music down at all, but, the the teenage idols of the time, you know, the Frankie Avalons and uh, Fabian and Ricky Nelson were all on the top of the charts um, with that style of music that can't really be considered, you know, cutting edge rock and roll. And so here comes the Beatles and the Zombies and all these other bands that sort of had this very familiar sound to it, but different. And I think to me, it was um, sort of a pie in the face in some people's estimations, but mostly the kids who were buying it were all, this is fantastic. This is really great. And something relatable with topics that were germane to what they were experiencing and very much associated with the right the the times you know the era the emotions um and the things that people were going through and of course as things like the civil rights movement and the war in vietnam many of those songs spoke to those topics as well but i think that relatability to a larger 
demographic. And of course, we're talking about the baby boomers for which there were many, 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 all the births after World War II um, was really a, a symbol. You know, it, was, it wasn't just a musical style. It was part of the fabric of their generation. Yeah, yeah. I always think, whenever I think British Invasion, I just think, the Beatles, Rolling Stones, long hair, doing what your parents don't want you to. Uh, why are you listening to noise music and rock and roll? You know, that's just all I think about. Um, and I, I feel like there's there's part of what the British Invasion was so good at. I feel like there's part of that with every new genre of music that comes out that kind of the younger generation is really into. It takes everybody else a little bit of time to get used to it and usually there's one or two standout artists that rise to the top and take over all the charts. And then everybody's kind of forced to listen to it. And then everyone realizes how good it is. Um, I just think it's a, a really cool process that's happened a couple times with music and keeps happening. Um, but the British invasion was definitely one of the biggest times for it. Definitely. Yeah. And I, for some reason, I always just associate it with like this huge wave of music that was coming from you know, overseas from us, and like nobody could stop it, and we just it just crashed onto the shores, and we were completely obsessed with it. And I always just picture also the screaming girls at the airports because <laughs> how can you not? <laughs> I think that pretty much sums it up, and how crazy we were all about it. Um, but it, yeah, it, I mean, it's such a fantastic listening to these interviews in preparation for this podcast I I um, it became a little bit more apparent to me just how much of their music of the British invasion was really rooted in our own music that they took from us and I think that that's such a great thing uh, that it has such a true rock and American uh, foundation and yet they you know, turned it around on, you know, and made it their own and we loved it and no wonder we did. But uh, <laughs> it's just such a great story. And uh, I mean, they really took the music um, and made it their own and we loved it and we would not say no and just kept wanting more and more of it. <laughs> well, you know, and another thing that they brought up to me is the respect that these guys from England had for the American musicians of the past. Yeah. Yeah. And not that the American audiences weren't, but you know, there were very small little offerings in record stores in the early 60s for John Lee Hooker that Rod Argent just talked about um, yeah. until the British invasion. And now all of these kids are like rediscovering and being introduced for the first time these musics that were in their backyard. And I think that's another very compelling part about this for, for me, you know, the, the emotions of connecting to the origins of the music was important. And it showed because a lot of these guys who were not getting a lot of gigs in their older age, like John Lee Hooker, all of a sudden started hitting the college circuit. And a lot of these blues guys were, rediscovered and some of their greatest accomplishments seem to be now in their 60s as opposed to in their 30s and, and forgotten. Now they're re-recording and they're recording with Bonnie Raitt and some of these other artists that really embraced who they were and 
um, from, for my money, that is another very important but often forgotten element of what those great uh, British rock bands did for us. And it just shows how universal music is mm-hmm. that, you know, they t- you know, it can speak to anybody in any country and it ended right there with, you know, it was our, it was the roots music of, you know, of the, of, of America. And yet it completely, you know, the British heard it and they were like, yeah, no, I want to do that. That mm-hmm. sounds fantastic. Let's re- you know, recreate that. That's such a great thing just to prove that music is universal. So uh, let's continue on with our podcast and get back to some more interviews. You know, of course, a very important element near and dear to the NAM uh, life and NAM story is the musical instrument side. And I'm so glad that in this podcast, we're pausing for a moment in the story of the British invasion to recognize where these instruments that these guys in England were actually playing, where did they come from? Uh, <laughs> one place that was very, very important uh, at uh, the hub of the British invasion, as far as I'm concerned, is Liverpool. And right at the heart of Liverpool, right around the corner from the Cavern Club, where the Beatles often played, was a little music store started by a guy named Frank Hesse in 1934 that developed into a full-line music store. His daughter, Sara, who married Bernard Michelson, uh, who became the manager of the store in the later years, were there when these mophead kids came in. Now, John Lennon got his first guitar at Hesse's Music. So did Paul McCartney. So did George Harrison. <laughs> And there was a Ringo drum kit that is said to have been purchased there. I don't know if it was his first one or not, but one was purchased at Hesse Music. Whether it was his first, I don't know. But those are where the the lads went and hung out. That's where they probably got shooed away for playing too loud. Don't turn the amplifier up. You know, all the classic, I'm sure, happened at Hesse's Music. And it wasn't just the Beatles, by the way. Gary and the Pacemakers hung out there. uh, Billy Kramer, who we've interviewed, uh, hung out there. So there was a, a really a great hub there in Liverpool that helped foster these musical talents. And I'm so glad that we got to document some of that story. So we're going to be hearing from, uh, from the Michelsons coming up. Um, so maybe we should just roll right into it. This is Sarah and Bernard Michelson as part of the NAM Oral History interview. My father-in-law had this uh, theory. Um, he had... Pay now, uh, no, no, a deposit down. Easier, yeah. easy. Easier, easier easy. payments. And of course, in Liverpool, a lot of the young people had no money. So, so they, my father-in-law had no money. The youngsters who bought the guitars on easy payments had no money. They put their so, two pounds down and pay five shillings a week. I don't suppose you can even equate to five two shillings. Two pounds is, is uh, three dollars now. And it was, uh, you know, uh, a fraction each week. But even with all that, they never, not all of them used to like paying. They liked the, the easy payment, but we you took the uh, instrument, but instead of paying weekly, uh, it might be every two months. So Sarah and I used to spend our courting days. I was 19, you must have been about 17 and a half, 18. Uh, and enough we'd we, go. We, we, enough we'd go to knock on the door. I remember I'm knocking on George Harrison's door. Yeah, I said to George... Um, George, you haven't been making any payments lately on your, your uh, uh, guitar. 
And he said, me, I have. I said, well, I'd like to see the guitar to make sure you haven't sold it. So he came running to the door with his uh, guitar. And I looked at the guitar and said, yes, that's the, that's the guitar. I said, you, you haven't infringed the Higher Purchase Act. I said, have you got the payment book? So he said, I'll go and get the payment book. Oh. And while I was getting the payment book, I had a little card that I used to leave on the doorstep. And Sarah would be in her car, and it was like a Bonnie and Clyde situation. We'd go off, and on the card it would say, if you come in on Monday and make your payment, you can have your guitar back. Oh. And the, unfortunately, if we hadn't done that sort of thing, we would have been out of business. So our courting days were uh, very businesslike. And uh, if we went for a coffee, it would be about one o'clock in the morning in, in uh, you know, uh, on the, uh, not on, they didn't have motorways in those days, but we'd, you know, that, that's how we uh, spent it. And we eventually, we got the uh, business round, didn't we? Oh, was... But during this time, my father-in-law was in hospital, uh, my mother-in-law was running the business, and the business was starting to get stronger and stronger. So that... That was the time when I came in, uh, when I was about 20, uh, so I was about 20 years old, I came into the business full-time. Mm. Came into the bit because I'd been uh, trained as an electronic uh, engineer, uh, TV, radar, and uh, so I came into a good time because amplifiers, obviously, were starting to They were only in off. their infancy, you see, so yeah, there were problems. At that point, you had the Fender amplifier, you had the Selmer amplifier, Bessonat, all these Watkins amplifiers. Vox were just starting to come on the scene. Marshall hadn't even started at that point. They were, you know, they came in later. They were to be. <laughs> and what used to happen? I mean, because I, I, I say, was in the, I, I got involved in the business around about 1960, and all these new companies would come to us with a new product, like Marshall. Jim Marshall would come to us and say, "I've got this new amplifier. Would you, would you try? Would you buy a couple and see how it goes?" Or there's a guy called Watkins. Watkins amplifiers were very, very big in those days and had what they call echo chambers. And the echo That's chambers the were a very big thing. The shadows used the echo, the, um, the cell echo chamber. Yeah. But also Watkins, it, was, it would record on a, a piece of tape and a fraction of a second later play it back so you got that echoing. Mm -hmm. And depending on the delay, you'd get different sounds, you know. Uh, so the shadows uh, played on that a lot. And they have that sort of very high frequency sound. Uh, and I know the Beatles tried to get hold of that sound. And uh, they, they, they did have a Vox amplifier, it's one of their amplifiers. And they brought it into me one day, and I had to put in a, a high frequency preamp to get that. They wanted the shadow sound, you know. <laughs> and uh, so they, they were very articulate on their, uh, on their equipment uh, in those days. Uh, you know, they knew, they, they knew what, they, what wanted. they wanted. They knew what they wanted, yeah. So we, we did know all the bands, and there would have been in Liverpool probably about 300 bands at that time. And you've got a photograph where you can see that every Saturday, it was only a small shop, but during the day, there would be about a thousand people would come through. They wouldn't it all was buy. Amazing. And I've got to tell you, I was selling guitars, Fender uh, Stratocasters at that time for 120, 130 pounds. And I understand those guitars are changing hands now to about 20,000 pounds. That's about $30,000, isn't it? So the Beatles uh, also purchased instruments. Yes, yes, yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, they they purchased. What did they have? They had uh, a Hofner. They had. Um, oh no! They, they purchased all the guitar, most of the guitars off us. Uh, but later on, uh, they used to get sponsored a lot. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, Ringo Starr uh, 
who before he was in the Beatles uh, with with Rory Storm. You know that, don't you, Rory Storm? So he comes and he says, "I've got to have a really nice drum kit." So I said, "Ringo, I've got a drum kit that's coming out it's over the next fun. few weeks. A premier drum kit, and it's in a beautiful brown chocolate oyster. Tortoise shell. Yeah, like an uh, oyster shell, but in a lovely chocolate brown. It was absolutely magnificent. So I showed him a sample of the uh, material. He said, I've got to have it. So I ordered this drum kit, and I said, it's going to be about six weeks' delivery. And, of course, I've not got a ledger account on it because he used to get a cash till receipt because his mother was a money lender, and he didn't need any credit. He was like the wealthy guy, you know. Uh, and eventually the drum kit came and uh, uh, Sora and I delivered it to him, you know. But in between that, in between delivering it, Brian Epstein came into the shop on one occasion and he said, he says to me, because he was a personal friend of mine, Brian, and his, his brother really, Clive, but Brian came in the shop. He said, Bernard, you know this group, the Beatles, he said. He said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm managing them now. He said... I'm looking for Ringo, Ringo Starr. I said, well, Ringo was in, funny enough, a couple of days ago. I've ordered a drum kit for him. He said, what's his address? Well, I never like to give addresses because, you know, private, even then it was private and confidential. I said, but if you come in on Saturday afternoon, he's coming in to pay me a further deposit. Anyway, to cut a long story short... He came in. He was wanting to see him because he had him replacing Pete Best, who was the previous drummer. So I was very worried because I'm saying, you know, I've taken a deposit. I've got all the money for this drum kit. You know, he's going to let me down, you know. Anyway, he didn't let me down. He bought the drum kit. and uh, They went to America. They went to America. But before they went to America, Brian Epstein came in to see me. He said, Bernard, he said, you know, Ringo's in the band now. He said, we're going to America. And this, is like a, this is already a few, uh, a few weeks after, you know. And uh, he said to me, I've got to have some decent amplifiers. I said, look, Brian, if I can get you Vox amplifiers, uh, will you pay all their accounts? Because they owe me about £800, you know. So £800 in those days is about $1,200 now, isn't it? That sort of thing. But in those days, it was a lot of money because it was probably 10 times that amount. You know, everything's changed, you know. And it... Anyway, to cut along, so he said, I'll do it for you. But what he didn't know is the Vox amplifier that had already been on the phone to me the previous week, I think it was, and he said, look, Bernard, you know this Beatles or Crocodile, Crocodile what, what is it, the Beatles? I said, it's the Beatles. He said, they seem to be in the newspaper a lot these days. He said, we'd like to sponsor them. So I said, I'll see if I could use my influence. And that was <laughs> Tom Jennings from, uh, that was Tom Jennings from Vox. So it all tied in together. So they got their to amplifiers. Slide, they got their amplifiers. I got my eight hundred pound. Uh, so the Beatles were straight on the books, and you can see I showed you the ledger accounts before. They were absolutely. We, we stopped chasing them. You know, they didn't have to. We didn't have to cross the road when we saw them. And they got the. And I organised uh, the amplifiers to go to America with the Premier drum kit. Premier drum kit. And I said to Premier, I said your 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 drum kit's going to be on show. But as soon as he got to America, Ludwig was there. And Ludwig gave him a set free of charge. And I never saw the Premier drum kit after that. <laughs> so that was, that was the, uh, that's the story with uh, Brian. And of course, uh, 
you know, Brian was a lovely guy, and uh, he, he, you know, appreciate after the four or five years he was with the Beatles, uh, it was like an eternity. He changed the whole face of the world, really, didn't he? Music business. Mm. So once again, that was the Michaelsons from Hesse's Music over in the UK. Very cool to hear from a store that outfitted the Beatles. I mean, how many people can <laughs> say that they've done that? It's insane. I also um, want to know where that's wonderful. Wonderful people too. Mm-hmm. And I want to know where that drum kit went. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that Ringo never got. It's somewhere. <laughs> it's somewhere. <laughs> So I just wanted to plug real quick um, before we move on the NAM website where you can check out the full collection of oral history interviews, over 4,500 interviews posted. Insane. I can't believe that Dan has done this. But if you want to check them out, head over to namnamm.org slash library. Um, and you can head to the advanced search if you want to see more interviews that we've done relating to the British invasion. We do have a tag so you can see all of the interviews we have relating to that subject or any subjects on the NAM website. And that reminds me that at every podcast, we should always pause for just a second to thank all the people who have made these interviews possible. I mean, there's just no possibility that we could do it without the help of those who have made introductions, who have allowed us to use space in their store or their rehearsal hall, uh, who have coordinated these things for us. And we, we, we are truly blessed to have the best support system in the universe. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have been so lucky to get so many great interviews. So thank you to all of you. And for those who haven't helped yet, there's always an opportunity. So we're always available for your ideas. And if you do have anything that you'd like to share with us as far as concepts or questions or ideas for future interviews, you can always email us at the word library at nam.org. So let's move on really quickly to um, another guy that, uh, that we need to introduce for our podcast today, and that is Spencer Davis of the Spencer Davis Group. Uh, we lost him this last year, um, but what an amazing guy. You Always at the NAM show, we got this interview uh, captured at a NAM show, very, very much involved with the industry, even far past his recording career. Uh, after his recording career, he was an A&R guy, similar to Gary, uh, I mean, uh, Peter Asher uh, at Island Records and helped out a, a myriad of careers uh, in that capacity. But during his uh, career, of course, with uh, the Spencer Davis group, he had a lead singer by the name of Stevie Winwood, who we have yet to interview, hint, hint to all of those uh, friends <laughs> out there. Um, who sang lead on all of their hit records, but it was uh, Spencer's band and Spencer helped or did the arranging and of course played on Keep On A Runnin', one of my favorites, uh, Give Me Some Lovin', which is I think kind of the Classic. theme song of um, <laughs> the 60s and uh, I Am A Man, which is another great tune. Uh, yeah, classic recordings for sure. And uh, Great guy, just an absolute sweetheart of a guy. And I'm so glad that we can have this opportunity to share with you uh, part of the interview with Spencer Davis. Round about 63, 64 was when this R&B craze, I'll call it a craze, was hitting Britain. Um, animals, Rolling Stones, of course. I mean, Brian Jones was totally into Elmore James playing Slide. And he and 
a guy called Paul Pond, who later changed his name to Paul Jones, became the, the harmonica player and singer for the Manfred Mann Band. And Paul Jones, as is his stage name now, happens to be one of the finest harmonica players around, you know, not just the finest in Britain. He hosts a blues show uh, on BBC. And uh, we did a tour, and my band on the, the So Far CD, we did a tour of Australia. Um, I think it was called, I think it was called The British Are Coming or something, um, with, with Paul Jones, you know, from the Manfred Mann Band. And um, he came up and played harmonica with us. I mean, he's a far better harmonica player than I am. I mean, I, I, I'm reasonable, you know, I can, I can handle a harmonica. I mean, you know, I can play, I've learned from those two people I told you about. I mean, I, they, they, were, they taught me well. John Hamm did anyway. I mean, he taught me some jazz inflections because you can play jazz even on a simple little Echo Super Vampa. If you know how to bend the notes, you know where to find them. But um, uh, I went, um, I heard that there was a, an R&B club opening up in Birmingham. This is 64, 63, end of 63, 64. I remember Birmingham was always cold in the Midlands and I got a teaching job, um, teaching, I think they were, I don't know what, it wouldn't be middle school, it would, they would, because they were young, they were, they were seven, eight, nine, up to ten. Was that? We call it elementary. Elementary, we call it elementary too, okay. or primary. primary yeah. yeah, so, this, so it, I became a teacher over there, but played on the weekends. But I heard there was an R&B club opening up in, in a pub. Most of the gigs in Britain were in the room above the pub. You rented the room from the landlord for, for a fiver or so, five pounds or something. And then if you were lucky, you, you took money on the door, you charged five shillings. And um, four times five shillings made a pound. So you had, you had to get a crowd in to pay the five pounds. Five pounds was a ton of change in those days. I mean, when, it was when, when money was money as opposed to, you know, the stuff we got now. And um, I, I turned up with a 12-string guitar, and I'd got an old um, high-impedance microphone that I jammed under the strings. And I managed to pick up an Ampeg amp from somebody. I said, I need to amplify this 12-string because you couldn't, you couldn't play in a pub with a bunch of uh, Midlanders or Brummies, as they call them, or drinking beer and talking. You had to be able to play over them. So I hooked all this thing up. And I had to roll the treble off, otherwise the thing would screech like a, like a mother. And um, I played, everybody thinks Muddy Waters wrote it, but it wasn't Muddy Waters, it was Willie Dixon. I got my mojo working. I played the interval um, for the, uh, this band that was supposed to be a rhythm and blues band, was not a rhythm and blues band at all. It was a, a 50s rock and roll band with dyed hair. And then the guy said, I want you. Can you come back next week and play the whole evening? I said, don't have enough songs. So I went on a quest, uh, and I've always, I still do it today. I need a band. And somebody said, why don't you go to this pub in Erdington, which is a northern suburb of Birmingham. There's a band there called the Muff Woody Jazz Band. And uh, they got a great keyboard player. He's only young, he's only 15. So I said, okay, you know, you always follow up on leads. So I walk into this pub in Birmingham, in North Birmingham, and the band knew why I was there, you know, like, like it's like, like the, 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 um, 
the underground, you know, it, it, it works, you know. The, and um, there was a kid sitting at a, a piano and he played a melodica. And one of the songs he played was um, One Mint Julep. You know, it was a da 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 like Ray Charles thing. And it was Steve Winwood. And then he played the piano. And I went, oh. And he sounded, you know, like, like Oscar Peterson. And, went, and then, then he sang something. And I, I went, bloody hell, Ray Charles. I mean, the, the guy had a, a hell of a voice. And I said, well, I have a band. I have a gig, but I don't have a band. I said, I'd like you to be in the band. And I never even contemplated the age difference. I'm 10 years older than he is. Um, you know, because I told him eventually he'd catch up with me, uh, you know, but through time. But um, um, he said, oh, oh, he said, oh, I'd love to. Birmingham, when he spoke, it was Birmingham. He said, oh, I'd love to. Don't have a driver's license. I said, that's all, I'll come and get you. But his brother, who played guitar, like Wes Montgomery, I mean, beautiful play. The whole Winwood family were all musical. There's no getting away from that. And he said, I'll switch from guitar to bass. We live in the same house. We'll, we'll rehearse. And um, Steve's mum brought us uh, sandwiches and tea, and we put a repertoire together, you know. Um, I, f I forget, Muff was, you had a great sense of humor. He used to, he called... Steve Mr. Rhythm, and he called me Mr. Blues, so Rhythm and Blues. And we learned a bunch of uh, Willie Dixon songs, Ray Charles songs, put them together, went to the Golden Eagle, and the whole thing exploded. Just Monday night resident. Monday, nobody goes out on a Monday night anyway. You know, Monday's like people are recovering from the weekend, so to speak. Sure. So we had a, a line. After two or three weeks, there were lines up, you know, up the sidewalk into the... Um, uh, into the club, I mean, we couldn't go wrong. It was packed, and uh, we did a couple of John Lee Hooker songs, Dimples. The animals did Boom Boom, which was John Lee Hooker song, same song, different lyrics. Uh, that's the way John Lee Hooker wrote. Sure. Um, and the, the local television company heard about this. What's rather remarkable is they sent a camera team along, a news team along, and they videotaped the line outside the club, but they never came in to see what was causing the line. And I thought, how strange! Wouldn't you come? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you come and videotape the band? Why the line is outside? I mean, strange country, strange country. So um, from then it just we had the Monday night residency at the Eagle. We had the um, then we moved to a. Big, oh, we, oh, we made phenomenal money. We made, we made uh, two pound ten each. We at the end of the evening, you know, we we divvied up the money. We were, we were, oh, we were rolling. I mean, I was supplementing my my teaching uh, money, which was crummy wages anyway. And uh, we moved down to what we called the Whiskey Go Go, which was a hall above a, um, a, a, a clothing store above Burton Burton's the Tailors. And uh, it was a bigger venue, and uh, we doubled our money. So, you know, we thought, we're on the way, you know, we're, we're really going to hit the big time. Were you still playing as a trio? Did you have a no, we were, we were a quartet. We had, oh, yeah, of course, we got Steve Muff, I forgot, the drummer from the jazz band. I said, you, uh, Pete York, the original drummer. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, that was a, was a four-piece. So it was drums, bass, two guitars, and I played harmonica sometimes. Steve played guitar. 
and we both we split the vocals, and uh, and I tell you what, somebody singing singing like Ray Charles, playing piano like Oscar Peterson, and having a grasp of a guitar at that age was just phenomenal. So I mean, the the great thing was since I put the thing together, we called it the Rhythm and Blues Quartet. But we were told there was an NRBQ in America, and there would be a, like a sort of a conflict. So, um, wasn't my idea. Um, what it, I said, let's call it the Spencer Davis Rhythm and Blues Quartet, you know, so that there's no, you know, no confusion. Probably the best thing I ever did, because when Steve quit the band, I was able to get somebody else in, and we still had a Spencer Davis uh, Spencer Davis group. I mean, we shortened it from Rhythm and Blues Quartet to Group. And um, as I said, that was probably the best thing that I ever did, uh, because the band now on the So Far album, Suspense Davis Group. Right, same name. Sounds sounds like a firm of accountants, doesn't it? Or um, you know, or, or sort of lawyers. Some kind of legal action. What's that? Well, legal action. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? How uh, long? How long was um, that lineup together? We stayed together from '63 to '67. And inside those four years, we did, um, we did, I, we recorded for. We got a Chris Blackwell came into the picture. There was a, a kind of a, a competition between George Ogumelski, who managed um, the Yard, the Stones for a while, you know, for a short period of time, and then the Yardbirds. And I, by now, was hip to what was going on in London with the Stones and the Yardbirds. So I took a trip down to the Crawdaddy. Remember, we'd taken all of these names from Louisiana, you know, America, you know, because we're all, we're all playing American music, you know, sure. we're playing rhythm and blues, you know. And I went down to the, um, the Crawdaddy, where the Yardbirds were playing, and the guitar, the, the, the singer and harmonica player was a guy called Keith Relf, who unfortunately um, electrocuted himself in a bath. I don't know whether you know that story. It's another arm of history. And the guitar player was a guy called Eric Clapton. So I walked up to George Ogumelski and said, you know, I've got a, a band in Birmingham, Steve, Muff, Pete and myself, better than the Yardbirds. And he went, oh yeah? And it so happened that Sonny Boy Williamson, an American harmonica player, because of the interest in, in, in American um, music and you know, harmonica plays, fabulous player, Sonny Boy Williamson. I think there were two of them actually, but you know, who was the real one, you know? So anyway, the Yardbirds had a tour set up with Sonny Boy Williamson and uh, George Ogumelski brought, came through Birmingham. I told him we were playing at the Golden Eagle and he actually brought Sonny Boy Williamson with him with a briefcase full of harmonicas and a bottle of Johnny Walker because he was into his whiskey, you know, great stuff. And um, I became, it was a, two, 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 a, a double-edged sword here. Um, I mean, I became an instant hero amongst the blues fans in Birmingham because I'd actually got Sonny Boy Williamson up on stage with us and we backed him. Um, and that was George Ogumelski's way of, of trying to get the management. But, you know, it's, it's, anyway, off they went to, 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 um, to Manchester. That's where, where the um, taping was for the BBC in an old church of all things. And then another guy was came through to do a show called uh, with a girl called Millie Small to do uh, she had a hit called My Boy Lollipop 
and she had a very squeaky voice, but My Boy Lollipop was a huge hit. And the guy that brought her to the TV show was a guy called Chris Blackwell. And um, Chris Blackwell had been asking around, you know, if there's any bands in, in the Birmingham area. Um, there was um, a band which later on turned into The Move, and then there was The Idol Race, which had Jeff Lynne in it, because um, that's where these people came from. And he came to the Whiskey A Go Go and saw us and immediately wanted to sign us and um, talk about uh, like a Faust sort of um, relationship. You know, he, um, we signed with him and it was probably one of the worst deals that we ever did. And I'm surprised that, you know, Muff Winwood, who fancied himself as a businessman, I was a I was a you know a teacher, university graduate, knew nothing about the music industry at all, and uh, we signed a management contract with with him, which swallowed everything from management, recording, publishing, um, um, also one night stands. He took a cut from all of them, so he was actually making more money than we were. Um, but you know, later on we we took him to court uh, years later, you know, because um, Steve got a piece of the publishing. I had to fight for my share of give me some love and thank God I did because that's kept me, kept me going all these years. And the Allman Brothers covered one of my songs. I co-wrote with Eddie Hart in the replacement for Steve Winwood. There was the, the Won't You No More, which was on the, on the beginnings album. So 67, we tour with the, um, with the Hollies. And they we became firm friends. I even bought a Sunburst Les, 59 Sunburst Les Paul from Tony Hicks for 250 pounds. Turned it around for 500 pounds. Thought I've doubled my money. Today that guitar, 75, 80 thousand dollars. Sure. But so what? You know, I mean, I I at least doubled my money then. Um, anyway, the tour with the Hollies was the last tour that we did with the, with the Winwoods and, and Pete York. Pete York and I stayed together, and Paul Jones, I mentioned from Madrid Man's Band, called me up and said, got a keyboard player for you, Eddie Hardin. And thank God, you know, because Eddie came along, and played B3, and could kick bass with his feet. Great singer, great writer, and we, I mean, we wrote the Allman Brothers thing together. So... I mean, it, it was like serendipity. I fell out of, you know, one situation. Because when Steve left, the attention went to form traffic. Obviously, the attention went over there. And it was like the Spencer Davis group has been uh, weakened by the fact they've lost one of the strong, the strongest, one of the strongest members in, in Steve Winwood. But as I said, I got it back with, uh, with Eddie. And he's on the, the official bootleg album, which, which I, I, I gave to Dan. Sure. So... Um, carried on working with those people and I haven't, I haven't really stopped. So that was Spencer Davis uh, giving a little bit of uh, his history and background in, about his band and uh, where he found little Stevie Winwood. A <laughs> uh, great story. And uh, I mean, he had such a long history, he had such a long history of music and it was so hard to try to really condense this down into, you know, a, a small little section just to highlight what you know what he did with the British invasion but it's such a great story and and you could tell he just he had music his whole life and loved it so much so uh, that was a great little segment that I thought to share 
Yeah, really good. I, I like that one a lot. Uh, next up on the Music History Project, we are going to be heading back to the interview with Rod Argent. He's going to be talking about his Hammond organ and other organs that he played and his experience at recording at Abbey Road. So let's hear from Rod Argent. Because I had such an interest in jazz, um, I was knocked out with what Jimmy Smith was doing around the late 50s and 60s, early 60s. Things like Walk on the Wild Side, The Jewel, and, and, uh, and, and some of the other things. Uh, I still love his playing now when I, when I hear it. It's, you know, it's got so much energy, it's fleet, and, and you know, I've always played quite fast, naturally. It just feels like a natural thing to me to do. Um, and I, I just loved all that. So I was very keen on as soon as I could afford it. I mean, Hammond organs were way out of my price range for a long time. But when I could afford one, I got one. And Time the Season was the first time I used it. I didn't realise the difference between some of the models at the time. And while I've got an affection for the L100, which is what I used on... Uh, on time of the season, I much prefer the, the C3 or the B3. It's the equivalent to the the US uh, B3, um, but they're the same. It's just different case. They're the same same organs really, uh, and I that that's my favourite sound. So I, I always aspired towards having one of those. I I like the sound of things like the Moog synthesizer when it came out, but. Um, I loved it for what it could do, but I'm always very frustrated and bored and have a low boredom threshold about, about reading manuals and finding out how to use all these things. Really, I'm happiest when I'm just sitting behind a piano. I mean, my lovely Steinway concert ground here, which is my pride and joy, I'm just happy sitting behind there and playing, really. I mean, that's what I really like to do. But I do like what the technology can achieve, you know, once you get through the headache of, uh, of, my, of, of working out the manual, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, what were um, some of the, um, did you experiment a little bit with some of the electronics? Like you were talking about the Moog and stuff? Yeah, I did. I mean, the, th the thing was, when we did, uh, at the end of the, the original Zombies uh, existence, and we were only professional for three years, that was it. We actually made Odyssey and Oracle in 1967, even though it, uh, time of the season came out in '69 in the states and was was in Canada and was number one over there. Um, but uh, we made it in '67, and the, when we started making the album, the the Beatles hadn't yet released Sergeant Pepper. They were just about to release Sergeant Pepper, but they just recorded Sergeant Pepper in Abbey Road Studios, and almost you know sort of a week after the Beatles had walked out of Abbey Road Studios we walked in to do Odyssey and Oracle. Now, it was very unusual at the time for a band that wasn't signed to AMI to be able to work at Abbey Road Studios. And, and strangely enough, it was our previous producer who somehow engineered that for us. I don't know how he, how he got it to happen, but he did. Now, uh, my point in saying this is that my memory is, and you have to remember this is a long time ago now, uh, but my memory was that some of the recording techniques that the Beatles had just developed with Sgt Pepper were available to us. And also some of the instruments that they use on Sgt Pepper, my memories were still hanging around the studio. So my memory is that now, again, this might not be 100% right, but this is how I remember it. I remember a Mellotron being there. And I remember using the Mellotron and being knocked out with it, suddenly these sounds of strings, and, and I thought of it at the time as being, we, there's no way we could afford an orchestra. 
but this was my way of being able to use string sounds. Now, it's a, it's a double bonus because in the end, the sort of, the sound, which is peculiar to itself of a Mellotron, it, you know, it's got its own sound, obviously, which to me is much more interesting than just putting an orchestra on something. So I'm so glad in retrospect that we couldn't afford an orchestra and that we used the Mellotron because it has such a singular sound, you know, it's such a great sound. And using those Mellotron, I mean, I only used the basic settings that are on there, basically flutes and strings, but it just sounded fantastic to me. And, uh, and that's... Really, that was my exploration of of of, um, of those things. They were they were lying around, basically, and and I think there was a Celeste in the studio that I used on something. But they were things that were there. Uh, we did use um, Chris White. I shared by this time. I was I was sharing a flat with Chris White, the original bass player in the Zombies, and he had an 1896 uh, Victorian American organ, pedal organ, in his flat. And I loved the sound of that. Chris had written this song called Butcher's Tale, which was on Odyssey and Oracle. And I loved, I suggested that we did that on his American organ. So we hauled that into the studio from his flat. And in fact, when we replic when we did the concert live, when we did Odyssey and Oracle live for the very first time, just two years ago, on the 40th um, anniversary of Odyssey and Oracle, stuff had never ever been played live by all us original players, etc. Um, I, I bought another model very similar to Chris's organ, which is now in my studio, but we took it along to the, 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 the uh, gigs as well as, as everything else. And um, all the gigs that we played, you know, we replicated every note that was on that single album. So anyway, on Odyssey and Oracle, we also used the, you know, I mean, if you can call that exploratory, because you're talking about something which existed, you know, hun nearly 100 years before. So, um, but you know, really, I'm not in the, in the, not in the way that Keith Emerson explored the Moog sounds from nothing. I didn't do that. I just took what was there and I was interested in it. But basically, I was bored and impatient with the process needed to... I'm not a technical guy, basically. I mean, I'm the sort of guy that opens the bonnet of a car and my eyes glaze over. I'm a bit like that when I open a manual for an instrument. I think, oh, God, I've got to go through this before I can actually get a sound out of it. The minute I can get a sound, I forget the instrument and I start playing things, you know. I just want to play, really. Hmm. That's really neat. Well, it, it, so that, uh, that album at uh, Abbey Road, what was, uh, what was that experience like? It was great. Um, we'd, um, we were very happy with a lot of things that had happened to us. We loved our first recording session with She's Not There and Summertime and the other tracks that I've mentioned, It's All Right With Me. But after that, and our producer was an extremely talented man, but he was an old school producer. The engineer was terrific. It, it was Gus Dudgeon's very first engineering session. Yeah. And Gus, of course, later became one of the most famous producers in the world, producing Elton John, etc. But uh, that, he was an assistant tape op, and that was his very first ever session. Um, so that was a very successful experience. We loved the way that first session turned out. But most of the singles after that we were frustrated with because we felt that Ken, our original producer, was trying, instead of just taking the music as he'd done on the first session and say, how can we make this sound best? He was saying, what made, you know, because he was old school, he was saying, what made that first record a success? Oh, it was Colin's breathy voice. Now, 
I'm second to none in my admiration of Colin's breathy voice, but it wasn't the only, you know, it's an element and you have to do everything else. Um, Ken tried to emphasise the breathiness on subsequent records above sometimes the meat of the rhythm section, etc, etc. So sometimes we would get very frustrated because we would record something, think it sounded great, go to the pub while Ken mixed it because he wouldn't allow anybody in the room while he mixed it. He was very autocratic like that. Um, and we come back and say, what's happened? Where's the track you know, that we left uh, you know, two hours ago? Where, where is it? Because it sounded so different to us. So we very much wanted to produce an album ourselves with our own ideas about how things should sound and where the tracks should go. That was one of the main reasons for recording at Abbey Road. And we got quite a different sound when we were there. We used uh, basically the two engineers that had been working with the Beatles, Jeff Emmerich and Peter Vince. Um, we got on great with both of them and they did a great job for us. And it was a, a very joyful experience really. Yeah, that's neat. And again, there's great hits coming out of that. Well, time of the season, I mean, we, we broke up as soon as, uh, there were many reasons why we broke up. One of the reasons was because Chris and I had a lot of income because around the world we had lots of hits actually. But in the UK, where we were based most of the time, we, we only ever had one, that was She's Not There, and that wasn't even a top 10 record, it was top, number 11 or something. Um, so our live income had dropped a lot in the UK, and a couple of the guys said, look, you know, we can't make ends meet, we've got to move on. And we thought, we felt it in the air, the band was going to break up. That's another reason why we wanted to make an album ourselves before the band broke up. So we made this album, um, and again, I've forgotten what the original question was then. <laughs> what were we I saying? I was just talking about the success of that album. Yeah. So we'd finished that in 1967, um, and then we split up because that was sort of in the air anyway. And then, of course, 18 months later, because in that, it was in those days, I mean, nowadays a record comes out, you know in the first week if it's going to be a hit or not. In those days, something could build over a great deal of time. And certainly in the States, there was a single DJ in Boise, Idaho, that played um, Time of the Season and wouldn't stop playing it. And he was started to get a real response. And in the way of things in those days, it started to spread all over the States and Canada. And in the end, it became number one in Cashbox, number two in Billboard, I seem to remember, or number three in Billboard. But Cashbox was an equivalent to Billboard in those days. The two of them just bestrode the charts between them, you know. And, uh, and it was certainly number one in Cashbox. Um, uh, but in time, at time of the season, I think was number two in Billboard, number one in Cashbox. So it became an enormous, enormous success. But after, uh, it, it was the... In fact, first of all, Odyssey and Oracle wasn't, as an album, wasn't even going to be released in America. It was only because Al Cooper, who was the hottest producer at the time, uh, came over to England, picked up hundreds of albums, literally, and played them. And his words, that it were on the back of one, either the US release or one of them, was that in his ears it stood out as, as a rose amongst thorns. And, and he went to Clive Davis and said... Uh, I found one thing that you, no matter who they're signed to, you just have to acquire this. You've got to acquire it. And Clive Davis says, well, we already have them and I passed on it. So he said, well, you've got to rethink. He said, you've got to put it out. So reluctantly, he put it out 
released Butcher's Tale, which I think is a wonderful track, but not a single in a million years, which of course wasn't a hit. And then two or three other records, which um, Al Cooper said were not his choices for single, as a fourth release from the album, release time of the season. Now, all this took about a year before this, we got to this point. And then it took a further six months for time of the season to start building and growing. Six months after it was released, it was number one. So that was uh, the last little segment with Rod Argent, just talking about um, uh, the zombies and the short career that they had. I did not realize that they had only, they were only together for three years. That's Beatles shortness right there, mm. what they were able to accomplish. Um, great hits, so this, <laughs> great, great yeah. music. Yeah. yeah and they all, took it, as, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say like everyone during that time, like they just cranked out like hit after hit. And it was just, it was so amazing to just look back at that and the time frame and realize all that talent that they had. And, you know, the, the zombies were similar to the Beatles in the respect that they took advantage of the technology at the time. You know, the Mellotron is kind of looked upon as being so antiquated now, but at the time it was totally hip and happening and new sounds that nobody had heard before. And it was a pain in the butt to, to actually use. Hardly anybody ever had it on stage, but you could, under the right circumstances, use it in the studio and both of those bands did to great success. So uh, I love the fact that they took advantage of the technology at the time. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so to kind of wrap up this podcast, we're going to hear from Peter Asher again, and he's going to touch on some stuff that the three of us have just already talked about a little bit, which is just um, how much they loved our music and uh and how inspired they were from it. And I think he just, he says it very well, uh, maybe a little bit more concise than what we did earlier, <laughs> but he had just a great perspective. And I thought um, it was just amazing to hear, you know, from all of these interviews, the inspiration that they pulled from our, uh, from music from, you know, from America and, and what they were able to do with it and how much it meant to them and how much they wanted to honor that. So uh, I just thought that this would be a great little last segment to kind of wrap up uh, our uh, podcast, our video podcast, I guess. I don't know what we're going to call this, but <laughs> we'll work on that, that title, I guess. Uh, so here is the last segment with Peter Asher. You know, I would love to get your thoughts about the, the, uh, the quiet storm that became the British invasion. What, what was going on that, that made that all possible in your view? The Beatles. I mean, I, I think the British invasion was 90% the Beatles, 10% all the rest was put together. Now, having said that, of course, there were some fantastically great bands. The Rolling Stones, without doubt, the Hollies, the Kinks. You know, there are some extremely significant, great bands. I think it... it it really stems from the fact that we just fell in love with your music. I mean, we fell in love with American rock and roll and folk music and rhythm and blues in particular. And uh, because it was hard to get and, and, uh, and far away, and because it was American too, because you've got to remember back then, we, uh, we idolized everything about America. I mean, we, we were in this black and white bomb site post-war environment and looked across to you and you were like all technicolor and fabulous and you know giant refrigerators full of exotic foods we'd never seen and cars with big amazing fins and all this stuff we were whoa you know look at that place and and the, and 
to top it all, you have this incredible music from every Chicago and New Orleans and LA and New York and Memphis, and we knew which music came from where, and we were in love with all of it. So, I think that meant we studied it harder than you did. You know, we used to, we even flattered ourselves that we understood it maybe better than you did. I mean, uh, we were all big R&B fans. I I used to go to this place called Studio Fifty One. Um, which was Ken Collier's jazz club. Ken Collier being a trad jazz band from the era I was talking about before. And we would go, every Monday night was R&B night, and the house band was the Rolling Stones. Um, so I'd go and see them every Monday, and they were doing you know, all these covers, miracle songs, Arthur Alexander songs, miracle songs, um, Bo Diddley songs, all that kind of stuff. And they were great. And Honestly, we, we were kind of going, America doesn't quite get what they've got, you know. Um, and I think to some extent it may be true. For example, I do remember when we all had Little Richard's version of Tutti Frutti, you know, which was a hit in the UK. And we looked across the Atlantic and you'd all made Pat Boone's cover number one. We kind of went, you know what, they really don't get it. <laughs> they really don't. And, uh, and, um, and there was that, that strange conflict. I mean... And I, I know a lot of it had to do with our just total ignorance of the American social scene and the race stuff, that was, racial stuff that was going on and all this. Because I mean, I remember when Eric Burden and I went to see Otis Redding at the Apollo. We, we, we were in New York and we some, found out he was playing the Apollo. I said, great, we'll go, you know. And they went, oh, you know, you don't want to go up there. And we went, yes, we do, you know. <laughs> and we were just being sort of ignorant English kids, you know. But so we just, went up there and went to the show and it was fantastic, you know, and everyone was very nice to us. But, you know, maybe because we were so dopey in English, you know, because at that time it actually was kind of a dangerous neighborhood apparently. And, and um, but we just went, it's, we found out how to get there, we got a taxi, we go to the, buy tickets and see Otis Redding, and, which is what we did, you know. But we didn't know it was supposed to be an adventure. And, <clears throat> and same when, remember when Gordon and I were on the road and we went to, we're playing Memphis, and we said to the Capitol Records guy, how do we get to go to the Stax studios? We want to meet all those people, you know. They went, oh, no, you know, we don't, we don't know them, and, you know, because Capitol was the, other, the whole sort of white side of the music business, you know. We had promo, promotion guys in suits and ties looking after us, and we were very nice, but they really didn't think that's something we should do. But we insisted again, and we went to Stax studios, spent the day with Jim Stewart, and you know, all, some of the great musicians, and they played us all these tracks. Rufus Thomas was there cutting some. We were going, this is so great, you know. And, but all the people who lived in Memphis didn't hardly know about it, you know. So I think, as I say, it's, it's, it was no particular virtue on our part, but it was because it was, we, we knew how special it was. And for us, it was magical and far away and exotic. So to actually be in Memphis, of course we had to go to Stax, you know, because we'd read all about it, you know. Somehow we never, went to Motown, I don't know how, we must have been to Detroit, I don't know how we didn't insist on a Motown trip. But, and the good thing was, of course, people like that knew a bit about this British invasion thing happening. So, so they were very welcoming. It was like, they, they were curious, you know. Um, but who are these English kids and why do they know all our records? <laughs> but we did, you know. We, we were talking to Rufus Thomas about this B-side and that, you know, he was going amazing, you know. These alien creatures have come from across the sea and they know more about the music than the people who live on our street, you know. Mm. It was interesting. So, 
Well, I can't remember what the question was, but that, that was... Well, about the British invasion. And yeah. So, so anyway, that's what it was, was that we fell in love with your music. And the miracle is, of course, we somehow managed to learn it, change it ever so slightly and sell it back to you. you know? but, um, and then, of course, the Beatles went beyond that and wrote some of the best songs ever written. But again, inspired by you. And if you listen to interviews with the Beatles, they would talk about how wanting to be songwriters, you know, and when the one question we all got back then, invariably, every interview, what are you going to do when it's all over? Because it was beyond an assumption, it was a certainty that in a couple of years it would all be over, you know, and what are you going to do? And they would always say, we were going to be songwriters. And you have to remember that their admiration, particularly, wasn't only for all the performers they loved, it wasn't just for, for the miracles or you know, whoever, Marvin Gaye, all, all the people they were crazy about. It was also for Pomus and Schumann and Goffin and King and Mann and Wild. Those were all magic names for us too. You know, how do they do that? And, and the Beatles just went, well, I guess they just sit down and write them. And that's turned out to be the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> but they began, you know, as huge, as I did, you know, huge Goffin and King, and we found out all about Carol King. I didn't know what the name King meant initially. We found out about Carol King, and then of course I got to meet her when I came out to LA. Mm -hmm. But we were all devoted fans of not just the artists, but the writers as well. All right, you guys, that wraps up our podcast today on the British Invasion. A special thanks to Mike and Ashley for all their help in putting this thing together. And I'm so glad that we could utilize these great interviews from the NAM Oral History Program to uh, tell this story because it's an important one and it gave us an opportunity to all be on camera for the first time. So this is kind of a milestone for us and the uh, Music History Project podcast. And, um, you know, I just absolutely love all these guys that we got to uh, hear from today. And so I'm glad we had the opportunity to remember some of their contributions to the British invasion. My, uh, my final thought is really that uh, we have a wealth of music thanks to that movement that happened in the 60s. Uh, it's not a relic. It's not something that isn't important today. It, it totally is. And I think with technology being the way it is, we have access to all of that stuff. So I'm really hoping that uh, you listeners out there are inspired to go and listen to something that was talked about today. Maybe a recording by one of the artists that we talked about, or maybe just uh, your favorite Beatle album. I mean, I think that uh, we have the opportunity now to do that. And I'm hoping that uh, we'll all go and, and play some of their tunes. Yeah, uh, such a great, such a fun podcast to put together and listen to all these interviews and uh, and put this all together. And, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, but, you know, my two takeaways from this whole thing was that they really all loved music from the 1950s from America. And I thought that was just, I, I kind of always knew that. And, you know, I know the Beatles and other bands have covered, you know, music from the 50s, but I just never quite realized like how important that really was to them and how much of a catalyst that was for them to create their music. And, uh, and you know, even to this day now, bands and musicians are inspired by these guys who are inspired by those before them. So it's just, you know, a continued evolution. Uh, and I just love that they all actually all got to go to Abbey Road and record right after the Beatles too. Mm -hmm. They all had fun stories about that. And, you know, I think that that's just kind of that uh, 
that continuation line through through all of them. But they've all maybe they maybe didn't go in all the same you know past, but their paths definitely crossed many times and were inspired by the same thing. So it was just fantastic to hear uh, these stories, and I really want to know where the drum set for <laughs> went. <laughs> But at least he got his Ludwig, so we're all good there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and to echo what Dan and Ashley are both saying, go listen to some music. Go listen to music that you might not like or you've never listened to before. You never know where inspiration will hit. You never know what you'll like that you've never tried before. And if you play music, go learn something. Play something new. You, just different styles of music are out there that you've never heard or played before, and you just never know what it'll lead to. Um, and I think that's a great note to end this podcast on. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Um, if you are watching this as a part of Believe in Music Week, thank you and enjoy the rest of Believe in Music Week. Um, we hope you get a lot out of this show and we're excited that you came to see our podcast and enjoy the rest of our content. Um, if you are listening to this podcast on any other platform, thank you as well. And you will hear from us again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Anne. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.